0: Hello and welcome to episode five of Little Science Talks. I'm Heidi and I'm the founder of Little Science Co. And in my day job, I work to make clinical trials more inclusive.
1: And I'm Anna, marine biologist, about to start work in the renewable energy advice sector.
0: In season one, we are speaking to scientists from around the world to find out if and how generational influences shape their choices of a STEM career. In our last episode, we spoke to Aberdeen-based lecturer John Baird about his path into academia, which did include a detour into stealing a tank.
1: For episode five, we're catching up with the lovely Dr. Teresa Crew, senior lecturer in social policy at Bangor University about her research on class in academia and on being normal. I love that being (laughs) normal.
0: Remember to follow Little Science Co on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, all at Little Science Co and take a look at our lovely new website, including new products over at littlescienceco.com. For now, we hope you enjoy this episode and remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure that you don't miss future episodes. Hello and welcome to episode five of Little Science Talks. Today we are joined by the wonderful Teresa Crewe. Teresa, welcome.
2: Hi, thank you you want to introduce yourself? Um, yes, it's uh, Teresa Crewe. I'm a senior lecturer in social policy at Bangor University. Hooray.
0: And you are the first person on the podcast who is not a STEM person herself.
2: Yes, that's correct. Yes, I'm not. I'm not in your club.
0: <laughs> you can join our club. It's fine. We're very oh, open fine. here. Come over
2: to the dark <laughs> side.
0: <laughs> so you're not like an actual STEM person, but you do research with STEM people, essentially.
2: Yes, yes, I have. So what's
0: your what's your sort of what's your research background?
2: So after doing my PhD, I did my PhD in relation to graduates. And then I kept a phrase kept on coming up. I kept on being called normal. I don't, I don't know if the, the students <laughs> obviously don't know me very well, I'm clearly not normal. However, I kept on hearing the word normal being related to me. So just that that instant led me to uh, start doing a research project in relation to working class academics and um, I intended to interview perhaps, say, 10 people, and it just be a small, small project. But when I put the call out for people to take part, I was absolutely bombarded with people who wanted to actually talk about being a working-class academic. And obviously within that, I interviewed people, uh, not just... Most people think I've just interviewed people from, like, say, social sciences, but I've interviewed across the spectrum, and that obviously includes STEM, um, STEM academics as well. So that word of normal
0: comes up a lot and I've, I've heard it a lot with regards to like my own conversations with different people as well. Someone I was talking to last week it described it as like dirt under your fingernails type of normal, like a bit of a grafter. So how did that sort of spring into a working class academic research portfolio?
2: When I was, so when the students, so it was always students that said this to me and I, I knew what they mean. They just meant that they could talk to me without perhaps censor when they were talking. They could just say, for instance, oh, I've had a particularly, you know, not very nice day. They could say it and not worry about the words that they were using. But then the more I heard it, I just thought they're not me. So, for instance, the point of difference between me as a working class academic was, you know, normally people might think it was my gender, but I knew it was not based in gender um, because I'd spoken to male working class academics and they came up with the same thing. So I just thought, well, I'm just going to investigate. What, What does this mean? What does it mean to be normal? And I think it's just that, that they would perhaps not necessarily see me as an academic first so I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing but uh, just you know they felt comfortable talking to me like for instance the mum, the auntie, the next door neighbour that sort of vibe I think and that's where the research project came from.
0: Yeah I love that I think it's a really like it's such a positive thing that your students view you as like someone that they can actually go and talk to because there's so many people in academia that obviously don't have that vibe that that isn't like normal in academia. Normal is the outlier
2: essentially. Yeah. That's really sad, though yeah. that isn't it? The facts that I see even now thinking that, that 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 is a positive that students can feel they can speak to me like that. That's so sad because, you know, all I'm doing is just teaching a couple of subjects. You, you, you know, as in, as I say to students, like I'm starting new modules now, you know. On particular subjects, I might know a little bit more than you, but there's lots of subjects you know a little bit more than me. So that's how I want my courses to be run, you know, and that's that's why I tell my students that they come into my modules, not for me just to talk at them. Now, don't get wrong, students do struggle with this sometimes because a lot of times students will say, I, oh, I don't feel comfortable talking or I have anxiety. And these are all things I take into concern when I'm actually teaching. But it's important that they know that they come with their own like store of capital, their own assets. And it's important that every you know, academic recognises that in their students. They're not there just to be empty vessels. as They're not empty vessels, as Frere would say. Uh, they are actually there come with their own experiences, their own point of view. And that's just as interesting as what we're actually teaching as well.
0: Yeah, that is
2: definitely something that's rare because
0: there's so many academics that I've had throughout like undergrad and, and beyond, I guess, is even just like a. it's not it doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily a lack of respect. It's more of like a you versus them sort of dynamic that's built up and being able to have that like community vibe, I guess, that, you're, that you've that you built where it's like, look, we're all trying here. I might know a bit, but you'll know a bit more and we'll move
2: together sort of thing. And it's, it feels more communal. Oh definitely that's yeah the one of the feedback I got once one of my lectures is, is that the only thing that was missing was a, was a coffee machine that's what they said was The only thing that I <laughs> my life. and I thought that's right and actually they're not lectures there are workshops where I talk for 15 minutes on a subject I set them a task and they come back with what they think because I teach about social problems so it that's why even more so it'd be really strange if I talk from social problems from the point of view I know everything about this particular subject you will sit there and listen and take notes and then read take what I've said, you know, and just add some of academics to it. That just feels a bit. Oh, it's just not me. It's just not me at all. When I realised I didn't have to do that in academia, that well, actually, I have really done that approach right from the start. But when I had my own modules and I realised I didn't have to teach the way everybody else does, it really did open up my, my approach to teaching. So I definitely would say let your students in more. They're very interesting, um, and they've come with lots of different different life experiences, and they know an awful lot more than you think as well.
0: And often as well, they know more than you think in very niche areas too. So when you're teaching something like sociology and social problems and stuff, it's it's obvious that you would need them, you know, their input, because they've got different life
2: experiences. Yes, definitely. Exactly. Yeah. So to not include them in my module would actually... Well, it would show my my inexperience I think you, you know so I'm gonna so this year I'm gonna teach, teach about basic income um oh, so every time I say basic income I almost say basic instinct which is 1980s <laughs> like film um which is not the appropriate thing to say <laughs> at all, I have to stop. so I'm not going to teach some basic instinct I'm going to teach them basic income uh, and they're going to talk to me about their experiences what they feel about it uh, domestic violence homelessness you know just those subjects alone people are going to have their own experiences and how on earth could I even with the help of many many academics who've spoken and researched about this topic how could I think that I could teach them that we're going to teach each other basically that's our module I work. love that well
0: thank you it is it's super super just it's a really nice and as we said sad refreshing <laughs> um <laughs> outlook on how to teach I guess that is just
1: yeah but I think it's different as well because you know, you're described as approachable and that's why they want to share this with you. They wouldn't share this with someone who who was just closed off and now we're going to read this book and you're going to write this down. So I, I think that's a really big part of it. Definitely.
2: Well, that's really nice. I think one of the things as well, I, I often, because I have to play devil's advocate with what, so say for instance, they're suggesting we need to have basic income. I would definitely play devil's advocate and argue against them. But I have, I just like, play a game with that i say right okay i'm going to be and i just describe a person who i am who completely disagrees with everything you saying, and this is the reason why and it just makes it a lot easier to make myself you know bigger than i am as in to say look you know, you know if i'm not disagreeing with you because what you're saying is wrong i'm disagreeing with you because i'm this particular you know like um i give myself a character to play so that settles them in as well you know Well, i'm hoping so because i'm going to teach it on uh, tomorrow so i hope because <laughs> i've made it sound so good but I do hope it's as good as I hope it will be tomorrow. But normally, it sounds brilliant. Come. Yeah, can we come? <laughs> <Yeah, no. laughs> <laughs> I'm got we for all live as well. So, so yeah, so, so yeah.
0: It does it sounds brilliant. I remember those, like those lectures as well, where you where the lecturer ends up playing a character, always stick in the student's mind more. It's like one that I had, which is completely irrelevant, but is kind of funny. We had a a lecturer who had two rugby balls at the start of like at the front of the desk, and we're in this massive lecture theatre, and I was like, what on earth are you going to do with two bloody rugby balls? If he's if this is going to be one of those lectures where you know like they throw a ball out to make someone answer a question, I was like, don't don't be that guy. But instead, what he did was he lined tables up at the front and he ended up holding the rugby balls under his arm so that they were like ovaries and sat with his feet out and he was like this is the vaginal canal <laughs> and everyone's like what but that stuck in my mind so much that he was like sat at the front essentially being a vagina and I was like oh, okay then so
2: What's those that like well? I teach gender so maybe yeah. i She's not one. <laughs> Two rugby balls under your arm you've got a pair of
0: ovaries. <laughs> Mad. But, you know, it does. It sticks in your mind. So now I'm like, oh, that's where the ovaries are. This is the tube. <laughs> 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 Ridiculous. But, you know, it does. It does. It helps. And like having those characters as well also helps to sort of distance yourself, I guess, from any, not necessarily prejudice, but like it doesn't necessarily have to be your view. It's your Definitely. character's view. And then you can do this like back and forward with the students to be like, but what about yeah. this?
2: I'm not Prejudice is a good word actually because yes because sometimes like for instance when people are talking about so the idea of the module is that we come up with um, solutions to social problems so this is like a grand a grand you know aim of the module so I have to argue against some of the solutions that the students come up with so one if I was myself it would sound like the lecturer is arguing against what they're saying and that means it's because it's not very good It's it's not you know uh, an effective approach but also yes I might have to say things like well no the solution that you're saying to homelessness wouldn't work because what about people who are for instance lazy all these like you know ideas behind homelessness I have to bring in that so people can either argue against that or even if people actually have some element of um feel some element of that I've got to allow them to speak but just make sure it's not in a prejudicial way as well so yeah it's it is a really effective way of Making it not about me, making students not feel stupid, and making it an open forum. Really, you know, you know, it can be difficult when you know. The only issue is that sometimes we do talk about really sensitive areas, you know, domestic violence, mental health, you know, is in. And I do warn my students beforehand that just to be mindful of, you know, that you know, when you have an opinion, it may. Upset somebody, so just be mindful, you know, don't go out just to be hurtful or anything like that. So, I do have rules, you know, in that way before a session gets started. But yeah, I, I it's actually, I love teaching gender, but this is my favorite module that I, that I teach because it's loads of different topics and I just react to what's happening in the world right now. So, so yeah, so really, I should just teach about um, what is it, petrol shortages? Maybe <laughs> that's what. <I'm> <laughs> What do we do about these shortages, you know? guess like a different different a can the BBC. Please. (laughs) So if anyone comes up with a can, I will be quite quite distressed with that one and I may not use a character then. But uh, yeah, (laughs) there's lots of different... There's so many ways you can go with a module like that and I really do enjoy that and I think that's the part that even though I mean I've loved writing my book even though I did rightly love writing the book I did find that um I, I don't want to go away from teaching I, I would I would hate to end up being that academic that wrote so much that I couldn't you know that I didn't teach but more than likely there's no chance of that I actually won't write so much anyway so I'm, I'm giving myself airs and graces before I've even written a second book But have you got a second book on the horizon Or is it just just the one I always have I mean I'm quite lucky I always have lots of ideas The problem is actually doing all the ideas That's the problem I have So it's a nice problem But um, the piece of research that I'm looking at next Is actually in relation to disability in academia Because when I was interviewing people, although I only interviewed, I think, five to six people who declared they had a disability. During the interview, it became apparent there was more. It was just strange that the five to six people who had a disability were all on temporary contracts. They all had struggled in some shape or form. So I just thought, that's going to be my next project. Whenever you think about disability in university, you think of students. And quite rightly, they deserve deserve help. They should be helped. But it's actually um, the academics as well that get left behind. I have epilepsy, for instance, and they often, at my institution, I can't think of anything else they could do for me regarding epilepsy, but there are academics who are not supported because of their disability. So yeah. I think I always look for, again, either a social problem, problem, something that needs to be sorted. That is always the idea behind any research that I do. So, yeah, attempt temperature, that might be a book. But, yeah, I've got to... Basically, I've got to get, get it started. I'm in the middle of uh, writing up at the moment, writing up the research proposal. So, so, yeah, it's nearly there, nearly, nearly ready to start.
0: That's fab. It's, it's just it's honestly just really nice to know that there are researchers doing that kind of work, because obviously it's not my research area and I speak to lots of academics all the time that kind of fit into each of these gaps that yes. you're finding and then you're working on it's like oh i've got somewhere to point them so that they don't feel alone so've i've bought your book for like
2: two or three people already and been like look it's okay there's more of us uh, we have more thoughts yeah and i think you know and the other thing with my research i always go for lots of different areas as well so i couldn't imagine i mean the academics that can do this i think fair play because i can't do this but i couldn't just write about one single subject forever and i just i, I find that research always opens up new well it should open open up new areas of interest and i just think there will be the intersection of class that's going to come into regarding you know um the experience disability but uh, i just thought if i look at that i you know there's a couple of really good papers on disability in academia but i'd really like to add to that literature that's the idea that i'm going to do next when i'm not teaching
0: (laughs) yeah when you're not when you're not being a i don't know fallopian chew or something yeah Yeah. i'm speaking to uh, um PhD student last week and we were we were talking about exactly this how disabled academics and neurodivergent academics in particular tend to be completely missed by the university so they tend to like you know all of it is geared towards students which is good because that's a big part of the university you know ecosystem but the PhD students tend to get missed and the staff tend to get missed and so this massive gap as to like but how do we support these people and then you have this intersect with temporary contracts and precarity and you know, workload management and all that kind of thing. And it all just kind of comes together into this intersect of like, oh God, how on earth do we solve this? Yes, definitely. So I think like knowing that you're, you know, fingers in lots of different pies with different projects and things like that, I think it's really important as well because then you come in, as you've said, with, you know, a class perspective from the, you know, into the disability world and potentially other things as we go on. I think that's, it's a really important thing to sort of bear in mind the other issues that are at play rather than it just being, You know, this person is disabled and therefore that's the problem that they're going to be, you know, tackling. It's not. It's often everything else that surrounds them that makes the the disability hard because being disabled is not necessarily a negative thing. It's just society's
2: view on, on that disability and how you then can't deal with it. Well, that's actually what you say there about that disability not necessarily being a negative thing. I couldn't agree more because that's, I mean, with regard to my work on working class academics, the whole idea that I had when I came into that was that the literature that I'd, um, that I'd seen, brilliant, beautiful literature, but it often focused on the terrible things that happen to working class academics and I just thought we really need to focus on you know the attributes you've got as being a working class academic and the same thing with disability as well so I often even though I end up like you know I teach social problems I tend to write about some form of social problem I like to bring out the positive somewhere you know because I just think otherwise it's a focus on like this kind of deficit thinking and I'm just not really not a fan of that you know like for instance I have, I have an epilepsy in my experience is extremely different to somebody else's you know so and you know there are some there are some positives with any disability you know as in obviously a huge amount of negatives but I just think we need to see people with disabilities in much more rounded apart from just having a disability you know I'm not Teresa with epilepsy I am Teresa you
0: know definitely it's kind of trying to get people to move as well from like that medical model of you're, you know, you're disabled, and therefore let's look at you as a disabled person into a social model in in being look, let's use your disability, let's look at it and be like, right, how do we need to change the things around you to make sure that you can live a full social life? Yes. Um yeah. I think that that often is what universities tend to miss as well. It's just kind of they do see person with disability goes on to list with certain disability, you know, indication or characteristic, and then the rest of their passions or hobbies or whatever tends to get missed and you end up being like okay but what else can they
2: you know what else do they want to do it's not they are not their disability yeah and I think, like, COVID's really um, highlighted a tick disability, how we can all work so much differently. So I think being interested in this particular area, I might have come in just at the right time, just from a research point of view, because I think it's going to start changing with regard to COVID. You know, COVID's highlighted. We don't all have to, you know, come into an office, work nine to five, you know, go home. Well, I say with team, it's not exactly like that, you know, we work weekends and blah, blah, blah. But it's shown that we can work as we want to work. So if that can work for, you know, the A, the able body you know the traditional um academic it should work for every other academic and including academics with disabilities without a doubt so that's the area I'm about I'm about to go into that it's just uh I didn't get as much finish as I would have hoped I ended up taking on too much as usual so it's story of my life academic <laughs> life yeah yes. <laughs> Yeah.
0: But it is, it's like, I think one of the conversations, again, that I was having with somebody last week was around, like, academic support staff as well, and that usually academic staff tend to have some degree of freedom, so, as you said, we work relatively flexibly, most people I know are not on, like, a nine-to-five, you have to be in your chair at 9 nine, and then, you know, you leave at five, it tends to be, I'll start doing some emails, and I'll do something else, and maybe I'll, you know, finish a bit later. I'll go for a longer lunch, and do a bit of stuff on a weekend, that kind of thing, but the support staff our institution anyway um, have never had that kind of flexibility before and now with Covid you know they're all sent home at at once and suddenly they're like we've never been allowed to work from home we've never been allowed to work flexibly before ever and suddenly Covid's shown that we absolutely can so what's you know how is this going to move forward so I think that'll be a really interesting point as well.
2: It's you know I often think because having like I've done academic support work many years ago I was absolutely terrible at it Um, and I really do know you know the the academic support staff don't get the, you know, the, the credit they deserve. They really don't, and I think that often part of me with me having a class lens on I often think that not just academia but other places as well it's almost like do they think that some people can't be trusted in a workplace to actually do what they're supposed to do and it's it's almost like you know academics traditionally middle class institution you know there's met I'm sure there's many many people doing um, an academic job who are also middle class but I think it's in comparison you might see that yeah the the academics is more like a middle class uh, job and I just think there's this lack of trust when it's been for the um the administrators and really i mean there was no reason why they needed to be in the office unless you know unless they want to be uh, unless there's like even if there's a job share where some come in like two days a week to see uh, students um you know share it like that but i just i'm hoping that they get some Um, some parity now I I really am because the academic stuff uh, I've got in my institution are absolutely fantastic and I couldn't do my job without them and that's not just saying I mean literally I could not do my job without them they're all fantastic
0: totally agree it's always like my first bit of advice when we've got new PhD students or new master's
2: students and stuff and
0: they're like so what do I need to do and I'm like I need to get the administrators on side because they run all of us and if you know if they go on strike we're all absolutely screwed yes like we don't even know what rooms
2: we're allowed into so you really need to like get get on with them, and it's like you know saying about when you know about going around striking things. I think the sad part, the emphasis was all on you know it's very important, but it was the emphasis was on lecturers' salaries. And I just thought, what oh, 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 academic staff? What, what yeah. about our administration staff salaries? You know that they were going through the same thing, and um, I found that a bit sad. And again, to me, it just felt all class based. Some of the yeah. well, I see class everyth- everywhere, so so I would say that, but uh, it just did feel very unfair this was not a strike about um, many years ago. It was not a strike just about lecturers' salaries. It's about everybody's salaries, you know. Yeah. Is it? Um, so, yeah. And often
0: those, you know, the, the administrative staff as well, have, oh, for us anyway, they tend to have been in their post for a really long time. You know, they, they get really good at it and they stay there in their job and they love it and they're really appreciated by the team around them. And then suddenly, like, the pensions issue will come up and it's like, well, come on, clearly this has to be, part of their issue as well because they've usually been the ones that are running this unit for for longer than any of the academics have been in the same room
2: so yeah definitely, oh, definitely. like I've, i worked as a senior tutor for the last three years and I think most of my emails were to, to the administration staff saying what do I do here or sorry yeah. I'm to ask you this you know this because they knew so much more than me so so yeah I wish they got a lot, lot more respect than they do sometimes it's a bit unfair
0: yeah Definitely. I'm glad that there seems to be many of us that are kind of understanding that and at least like, yeah, being more appreciative than hopefully past generations of academics
1: may have been in the same situation. And students, fellow students, or I'm not a student anymore, but please... Be nice yeah. to the academic support staff. They have lots to do.
0: <laughs> they really do. So and they don't. tend to get like hundreds of emails every day mm-hmm. and some of them are, for some of them will be from students, some of them will be from confused academics that can't work certain IT systems <laughs> and they just calmly respond to all of us. It's I know. Just, How do you do it? Because if it was yeah. me I'd be throwing my laptop out the window.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you sending yeah, passive aggressive yeah.
0: uh, <laughs> emails. Please find the help guide here. Yeah. Like, Let oh, me sorry. google
1: this for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: they are they deal they deal with an awful lot of flustered people yes (laughs) okay so if we if we think about the book and the stem representation that you that you have in your book particularly the book kind of focuses on like precarity and working class academic life and how I guess the academia tends to like influence who is in it based on the structures that that are already present and stuff did you find differences between STEM groups and non-STEM groups? Like what, did you, what were your research findings in
2: that sense? So when I did the book, so I've interviewed people from uh, 20 different subject areas, and then I would say one quarter of them were from STEM subjects, and I was a bit disappointed with that, but as a researcher, I've got to go with the, the, the networks I have. I'm sure on Twitter, the networks I have all are more primarily from the arts and humanities. so perhaps there was some standard there. But one thing that just struck me was about the visibility I think what 's over and over has been in my head is that because stem as a you know as a discipline as a you know, which covers a, a wide variety of disciplines it's perceived and positioned as a much more i think much more prestigious in comparison to arts and humanities I often I often wondered when I was interviewing people and I did ask um, the academics I spoke to. Did you feel less comfortable talking about class? And that was something that I got over and over from the STEM academics in a variety of different areas, from biology to psychology to engineering. Uh, so there wasn't really a difference here. It was just under the umbrella of STEM that class didn't get spoken about as much. So in the way that you know we read lots of literature, how it's you know very very difficult to be a working class academic. I felt that that was more from at least um, people from Arts and Humanities were able to speak about this. Somebody actually said to me they didn't feel comfortable speaking about class because they may sound like a radical lefty. And I just thought, well, I remember saying to to the person, well, for one, why would that matter? You you know, you're in university. University's traditional things have been seen as quite lefty anyway. But um, the person in question suggested they may not come across as professional, Whilst it was more acceptable to talk about gender and ethnicity, it just wasn't okay to talk about class. So I think that affected some of me being able to recruit. And I think there's just two reasons. One, because if you're talking about class, you're just reminding people of economic differences. You're reminding people of social differences. And often we don't like to be reminded of that. So, for instance, if I'm speaking to an academic from a very elite institution... I'm sure they think they've worked very hard, and they have. They no doubt have worked very hard. But people don't like to think about the advantages they may have and the barriers that other people may have. So I think that was one area. And I think as well is that they just there wasn't the visibility. So it was a catch-22. Because there wasn't the class visibility, they didn't hear or you know didn't observe people who actually actively said that they were working class, people didn't feel comfortable talking about that issue. And also by talking about that issue, you're, you're referring to yourself as being less than middle class, and you know like most most institutions that you know come from like a graduate job. Sorry, face that most graduate jobs are you know middle class. That's the idea behind it. You shouldn't really be saying that you're less than. I know there was a person that I spoke to who um, talked about how he managed to get himself through university. He really struggled to get himself through university. And it was a series of luck. That's a a word that you hear over and over in relation to working class people. But a series of luck meant he was able to um, finish his PhD. And I think he was a clinical psychologist. And he was talking about how when he went to different visits, he had his car with him. And his car was an absolute, well, a rust bucket, he said. Mm -hmm. And the amount of times that colleagues would say, oh, well, actually, colleagues would say, who's that car out there? We can't have that car outside. That's the right, blah, blah, blah. Now, this... This person never really felt comfortable saying it was his car. So he used to park it further down to avoid colleagues actually knowing it it was his. And he said that like when he went on visits as well, he would avoid parking his car outside a patient's house or anything like that, because he just didn't think he came across as middle class. And the issue about coming across as middle class or the issue, issue about coming across as professional came up over and over again. It came across with working class academics from arts and humanities subjects, but I found it's very different with STEM that you needed to come across as um, professional to look like you could do your job. Yeah. There was a lot more freedom from being like a social science academic. You could talk about class. People still would groan and moan and groan, but it was something you just couldn't talk about and you certainly couldn't, come across as if you're from a working class background yeah. um so that was quite sad hearing that over and over again I really just think it affected my data collection with STEM academics
0: yeah def- I can totally like mm. yeah definitely see that I remember um having a chat with my boss ages ago about a particular academic and how I thought she was really cool and I really liked her and he was like yeah she doesn't call a spade a spade she calls a spade a f***ing shovel <laughs> and that was like his his thing and I was like oh this is what I mean so that to me was like she's working class, she, she's got like the dirt under the fingernails thing, she, yeah. she's approachable and for him, you know, we were having this conversation as two middle-class people I would say and that he was like, oh, I really like working with her, she gets stuff done, she, you know, she talks to you straight, she's really easy to work with and then when you talk to other academics sometimes it's like, oh yeah, they're a bit um bolshy or too bold and, <laughs> you know, that is that like dampening down thing of having to present as middle class if even if you're not I think the impression I get at least as someone who is obviously working in STEM but is interested in like the arts and humanities and potential crossovers and stuff is often it can be not necessarily like a good thing but you can use it in your work as, as if you're working in arts and humanities whereas if you're in STEM it tends to be you're either middle class or you're you know you just don't talk about it you just don't mention it
2: oh definitely
0: which is is really sad and it is like it makes me think, I wonder how many like working-class kids just have thought STEM isn't for me and they've gone into some other area because they just haven't thought, you know, there's nobody that looks like me in that place, so I can't be that
2: person. I think so, you know. I remember there was um, a lady I spoke to, she was an academic at near the end of her career, and she talked about how she would part of the job though, no, she didn't necessarily have to do this admin job because she was near the end of her career and maybe it would be seen as too low level for what she had to do and she used to go into schools to talk to young people about STEM subjects because she said we are not seeing enough people from my background coming through and it, it really worried her because you know you need diverse voices I mean if it's all the same you know there's no challenge you know you need that diverse voices everywhere and what you're saying about yeah I do think it's much easier in social science for instance I tell my students I'm a working class academic and I tell them that not even just a when we talk about class for instance I take the the class calculator you know I ask them what would you think potentially I could be you know most of the time we'll come up middle class and I'll take the the, the the there's a class calculator that was by Freeman Savage uh, fantastic academics who compiled that And it's just interesting to show them I'm not, actually, the way I perceive myself It's not working class. I couldn't imagine somebody from a STEM, so I'm saying STEM, and obviously that's very, very broad. I've definitely realised that. But somebody in, for instance, psychology, someone in um, maybe not engineering, I think engineering might be an outlier. I just felt that that was a... Obviously there's lots of different disciplines Even with engineering So but I just think maybe psychology Nursing as well If you wanted Sorry, nursing was fine But if you wanted to become a doctor You better hide your accent You better hide anything About if you you couldn't have a bad car (laughs) So there was all these things that so that straight away is going to exclude people from coming in from the social aspects of coming in to become a doctor, but also from the aspect of actually money. How can you, you know, I, you know, how can you afford to have a good car when you're actually going through a degree unless you're from an advantage background already? So I think that's really worrying, and and I think the problem that we have, and it's often when people talk about um, that. People feel uncomfortable talking about class because you're almost saying, by me saying I'm a working class academic, if somebody's not, I'm almost saying that I've had it much tougher than you. Now, that's not what I'm saying. I've had a different experience. My respondents had a different experience, potentially, than somebody from more, you know, an elite background, something like that, more a middle class background. And I think we've got to recognise all types of backgrounds because it will preclude people from entering subjects like, you know, the STEM subjects.
0: Yeah, that nurse and doctor thing like really kind of stuck in my mind just then because obviously, well, I work in clinical research, so a lot of the stuff that I do is, is around, you know, how do we get people involved in research? How do we get doctors and nurses to approach people to say, hey, do you want to take part in this clinical trial? Here's some information about it. And I think the one thing that definitely sticks out is like this, not necessarily a class psychotomy, but even just like being able to see yourself as a patient in whoever you're you're speaking to in a medical um, capacity and you know nurses tend to go by first names whereas doctors it's doctor whoever yeah um, and even just that really seemingly simple and slight difference is massive and that like maybe I wouldn't want a, a nurse to talk to me about a clinical trial because that seems quite serious and maybe I just want to talk about my treatment with her or him and then with a doctor maybe I'll talk about something different that's maybe a bit more serious like that I'm not saying that that's my perspective but that is a perspective that is present heavily in the literature around approaching people about taking part in research and stuff and it is it's really important to to have representation across the board because as you've said diverse voices are needed everywhere and if we don't have them we're not challenged but also we can't then fill the next generation of, of people yeah. coming up because we don't have those diverse voices to say, hey, it's all good here, it's safe, you know, it's all right, you can come, because you know if we don't have them to begin with, and often it is, I think, because it's not necessarily not safe, but it's not it's not an area where everyone can thrive, and particularly working class academics, I always have a bit of a like a soft spot for them because I'm like, you've you've been through something different, but often it is something harder as well based on you know what other people may have gone through.
2: Oh yeah. And it's like, for instance, working classness in like say, I'm using psychology a bit because I keep on just from, I think a few of my respondents were more from the psychology area. And I remember one talking about how I asked her, what do you feel that you bring to academia, academia by virtue of your background? And she'd gone into some kind of um, she was working it was it was not social not um, social work, but it was within that field. So she was working with patients, and she said, "Well, when she visited a house with her two um, supervisors, the two supervisors had marked a house down as being um, and the family down as being deprived." But and when the student asked why, why, why was you know this? She was quite brave, asked, you know, why had you marked the house down as being deprived? Well, it was due to how many toys was in the house. Now, my, my... Just for context on the podcast, we're all we're,
0: like Anna and I's eyes have just basically come out of our heads. <laughs> yeah, I don't like, know what to are say. you talking about?
2: <laughs> the respondent said, Well, in my house, I didn't have very many toys because we didn't really have much money. And she ended up getting into a big conversation with her two uh, supervisors about what her childhood was like. And something simple like that, a house could be, uh, or a family could be defined as being deprived. There was nothing to do with the care, nothing at all. There was no concerns about the care. It was just generally, just to do with how many toys was in the house. There was an absence of toys. And I just thought, oh oh, that's frightening. That's very really frightening, that is, you, you know. So it just shows, you, you do, you, you know, I've often been to things when people say class doesn't matter, but but it does, and you know, but class matters in terms of, you know, the things that you learn about, you know, the the, uh, the capital that you have access to, your money, you know, you know all these things are going to have impact on how you manage to access different careers, different courses and things like that. But that did worry me just hearing that. I thought that's not going to be the only time that's happened. The difference was this particular respondent actually challenged her supervisors. I bet most wouldn't even challenge her supervisors at all. No, not at all. Brave. Really brave. And
0: also, like, it just seems really stupid. Like, it just it's like an aside, just like, what are you doing? Like, I mean, like, minimalists are, are people as well. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. there's, there's all sorts of different,
1: like, parenting messages. Kids don't need that many toys. Yeah.
0: And also, like, the storage where you might not see all of the toys. Like, it just yeah. seems so... Like, what? It's just
2: so nonsensical mm. that that is then an indicator of deprivation. Yeah, possessions are making somebody think better of a family. You know, the fact that the, the person that I spoke to who had a, you know, as I say, run-down car and he ended up hiding it so people couldn't see it in the end because he knew, what well, he'd had been judged. He'd been talking, you know, people didn't realise it was his car and I was like... You know what? And somebody said, "Why would you put a steering lock on a car like that? Because the car was such a... <laughs> God, the judgment in these people! Yeah. Bloody hell!" Yeah. So even like, so to go into certain you know professions, you better make sure you've got a good car. You better make sure that you speak well. You know, not to have a regional accent basically, because mm-hmm. you're going to struggle and you've already struggled to get there but you're going to struggle even though that you're just as qualified just as as academic as the next person you're going to struggle just due to those issues and that really did concern me that did
0: yeah I think that
2: the car thing as well is just
0: it's like this constant push on like yeah possessions and and that that is the view of success even though success has literally nothing to do with Possessions, (laughs) Possessions, <laughs> like it can yeah. do if you wanted to, but yeah, equally yeah. it has nothing to do with it if you don't. Like, and I think our generation as well are so conscious of overconsumption and climate change and consumerism and that kind of thing that it tends to be a lot of younger people now, anyway, are trying to like cut back on certain things. So maybe we'll shop secondhand, and it might not be a financial issue; it's more of a climate conscious issue. So yeah, I just that whole
2: thing. Just, Blows my tiny mind. Like I choose paper white, even though that that is a narrative that's happening at the moment. It takes a while for people's opinions to change, even though they're aware that, you know, we're trying to put down things. It takes a long time for people's opinions to change. I definitely noticed that when I spoke to the academics um, to do with, like, medicine, there was definitely... It's much more hierarchical there. Mm -hmm. I thought academia was hierarchical until I actually got in it, and I realised that it's it's not as hierarchical as it appears in comparison to medicine. I just thought, yeah... and um, one of the respondents talked about how his daughter, now I think the respondent was a PhD student, and he was talking about how his daughter had spoken to somebody um, like her careers evening about wanting to become a doctor, and she was like pushed gently into becoming a nurse. Nothing wrong with being a nurse at all, of course, but there was a there was a class in and more than Gendered issue to this, but there was a class issue as well. You know that perhaps that this person might want to consider being a nurse. You know before, and I think that's patronising on on the nursing profession, and um, yes. it's obviously um, discriminatory when it comes to uh, the doctor's profession as well. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's just two different things, isn't it? Like, and if you want to work in medicine, of course you can. You can do either, and many other things that are you know different professions and stuff that are there in medicine. But if you say you want to be a doctor, it's like saying, oh well, go and be an engineer. Like it's, it's just a different thing. Like <laughs> being a nurse is not the same. It's different. Yeah. It's a different thing. It's very strange,
1: that whole, yeah. Yeah, but even circling like back to the possessions thing, you know, nowadays you it doesn't have to be secondhand, but there are certain brands out there that if you have them, they might be, you know, eco-conscious, you know, like the Patagonia fleeces, the, the field and backpacks and everything. They cost quite a bit. Yeah. But, you know, you wear them and you're like, Eco conscious, your call, cool, your Yeah, definitely. It's like a status thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Just not accessible.
0: No. Yeah. So completely. And often there's like this weird stigma as to yes, it's okay to shop secondhand if it's going to be for a climate reason, but maybe it's not not okay to do it if it's for a financial reason. It's exactly. just
2: yeah. So that is yeah. complete snobbery and it's class based well and I think that was so things like this just to me when I was interviewing the 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 noticeable difference is there seemed to be more of a shame about class from stem respondents as opposed to the arts humanities and I think it's just arts humanities as in general are able to get get out views about class Mm -hmm great but it's obviously much better in terms of STEM there's definitely much more of a shame regarding their class status and then a shame about feeling ashamed of their their class status and I just thought that's a lot of internalizing you know that they're having to cope with as well as potentially you know being in you know precarious employment you know waiting to go to the next level of their employment so unpaid internships yeah 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 that was just impossible unpaid internships you know ridiculous The, the people that knew them had managed to, again, the word luck kept on being mentioned, that they had some money from somewhere so they were able to you you know that's you know but most people weren't able to so for instance in my institution um we do intern we do internships and um one of the things I really would like to ensure is that they become paid internships so they have we have paid internships but we also have volunteering and I would actually just like it to be paid internships because I think that it's the paid internships are going to be very you know very very difficult to get hold of. whereas most people will be able to volunteer but when it comes to you know if you've got less money you're not going to be able to spend that time volunteering um, yeah. so we really do need to think about that. It's often as well like with STEM
0: degrees so I remember like in first year when I got my timetable for example I had so much contact time that it was yeah. it was almost shocking I was like wait I thought as a fresher like you are going to just be able to go out and have parties (laughs) and like make friends and stuff well how am I in uni all this time and some of it was like practicals in like chemistry labs and stuff between three and six p.m like once a week and that was totally normal um and then like the arts and humanities friends that I had had much less contact time but they were then having to use it to go out and work if they were working class because obviously they didn't have the money to then support themselves and so you then end up with this weird kind of If you're a STEM working class person, how do you survive monetarily because you've got so much contact time, you don't really have the time to be doing that. But also if you're in arts and humanities and you don't have as much contact time, you know, within your degree, how do you then succeed within your degree because you're, you know, using so much time to work so it is it just ends up with this horrible balancing act to try and keep enough money to keep you afloat and when you bring in these like paid or unpaid internships I think unpaid internships should just be illegal to be honest definitely. it's, it's yes, just definitely. exploitative but again you you end up with even the people that have the time it ends up being a sort of skew to you know potentially slightly more middle class unless they're in the summer or you know when when all students have a break rather than when some students have a break oh and depending definitely. on how many jobs people have and stuff like that it's just
2: I think internships, what worries me about them in particular is that this is a research project I want to do, but I just don't know how to do it yet. I want to look at employers. So I've looked at, um, so far I've looked at graduates, I've looked at academics, employers are the next lot I would like to look at. And it's to see that when they hire people, why do they take certain people on and not others? And so, one of the things I've always included when I used to like run the workplace modules was practice interviews. Uh, was um, I used to include something that taught them what to do when it came to oh, assessment centres? That was, what I was Yeah, but uh, you know, because these are the sort of things that if you don't know what to do, you're not going to come across as well, obviously, as somebody who has that experience. And it does worry, you know, even like for instance, my daughters are obviously going to do much better in comparison to people who haven't got any any links with universities. So that's just something that really does really does it anger me so that's an area that I do want to look at why do employers take certain people on and not others and I just think again it's class-based but then again I look at everything through the lens of class so I would say that but I I have important though it is it's like yes you you look through that lens but it's often because that lens is there for you to see so yeah
0: yeah
2: Yeah, I want to see the positives I mean I'm generally a positive person so if I can see that things have changed and have advanced I will point that out but to me I think it's just that you know, when we think about a graduate, we think about a young, mobile person who, person, generally, you know, generally male who can, you know, travel where they need to for a job. We don't think about a graduate who may, you know, is female, may have other caring responsibilities, may not be able to afford to travel to different places for jobs. And uh, so there's a lot of this is why I always look at it through class. I've got no choice until it changes.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. We we just yeah, patiently waiting and shouting whilst we do.
2: Yeah,
0: I think as well it's kind of a when when you then become or if you if you become a working class academic, it then for me anyway they tend to be the people that are doing the most outreach and the most mentoring of students, you know, at local schools and that kind of thing because they've been in that position where they haven't. They, they maybe view it as luck as, as to why they've got where they are. And they've, you know, they're trying to give back a little bit to the community around them. But also then you end up with working class academics with skewed workloads that, have, that are much higher than potentially the middle class counterparts because they're doing all of this additional outreach and, you know, mentoring and stuff. And it,
2: it frustrates me. I always feel bad with that one because I'm going to say that is, that's something that I do, but then I feel yeah. on my, on my colleagues who, more than likely feel that they do a lot as well but I just know that some people would potentially come to me due to the idea of me being normal and I just so it's not to say and I think it's again you have to when you say it to people you have to say look I'm not saying you don't do work and you do not you know mentor people you don't help people but I'm saying that perhaps potentially people may feel more comfortable so for instance my um, work class academics I think all of them talked about doing some mentoring in some way. The academic I spoke to before, the end of her career has done very, very well, but she still feels the need to give something back because she's concerned about the state of her discipline if it does not include voices from, from outside the middle classes that's work that really I don't think many people of her stature would do, but it's fantastic that she's doing it. But again, that's potentially she could be doing something else. You know, she needs support. It can't just be one person doing that. So, mm. so yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah. I guess. So I'm gonna I'm gonna play one of your devil's advocate characters here. And just for full clarity, I do not believe what I'm about to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, just so we're all clear you've got to do a character (laughs) so I'm like a big I'm a big white conservative man (laughs) Um, so in recent years there's been a a bigger push or it might seem like there has been a bigger push for diversity in various parts of the world you know whether it's in workloads in research populations whether it's in in academia whatever how do you respond to someone that would potentially say you know like that person's only got where they are because of their class or because of their
2: status filling a
0: tick box again just for clarity, don't believe it. <laughs>
2: yeah. I could argue that the people that are already there are just filling some kind of quota because they've got there just based on their own their characteristics. So, you know, for a long time we had people that were, were getting jobs just because they were male, and then we started to see a difference where there's, you know, there's greater variety in terms of uh, gender. You know, we see more female getting jobs. But we've had that for a long time that one type of person has only got the job. Now, in terms of have they got the job because of tick box, it's like there's um there's different TV programmes. So for instance, there's an SAS programme and they have just been um, supposedly they're no longer working for um, Channel 4 and it's due to diversity. And I always find it strange when people have a problem with that. Don't you want to be against the best? So, for instance, all that's happened when it comes to diversity is the same, you know, two different people will come after a job with the, both the same characteristics. It's not that you're giving one person a job just because they look a certain type or, you know, have like a northern accent or an accent like myself. So I think it's really unfair when people say that. I think these people who've got the job, who are supposedly a diversity tick box, would have gotten that job. If things were fairer, and you know, I think if I was to go after jobs, I'd like to go um, against the, the whole of the field. I don't just want to go against, um, you know, like a little section, and all everybody else has been like, you know, pushed out of that field. Um, you should feel confident you know, in your own abilities. But as I say, we have a diversity tick box already, and if you take House of Commons, there's a diversity tick box. Um, so why not open it and have you know different people for a change? So yeah. I think, um, so I was talking to, again,
0: my boss today, we were talking about how in clinical trials, some well, some people have this idea where it would, be, it would be difficult to oversample based on ethnicity or gender or, you know, any other characteristic, because it would be difficult then for somebody else to take those results and to believe them. And then we were having this conversation being like, but we've constantly oversampled white men for the past however many hundred years. So, you know, and we expect brown women to take those results and believe them just as much as any yeah. white men would so what's the issue um and it is like I th- there's a book called mediocre I can't remember the author of it but it's basically about mediocre white men <laughs> which sounds great oh, it um, but it, oh, it ends oh, up oh, being I'll <laughs> send, I'll send you a link to it <laughs> yes. I'll put it in the show notes when I found, find found out who the author is but it is it's about like we've we've let mediocre white men of, of a middle class status rule the world for so long that yeah maybe it's time for for the best to come to to the top rather than it not being mediocre women
2: and it's funny because I always find it strange that when there's a complaint by that, you know, the injured party, and it's generally, you know, um white elite men that you know that they are being overtaken, you know, that their job's being taken by such and such. And I think, well, where were you complaining when it was the opposite? You didn't care then. Um, so I just find it strange that the compl- you know, when you hear complaints about diversity, but it was like, but that was okay when it suited you. It's not okay now that perhaps that you know, the field, you know, we look at what wants a wider field. I do, I think, it's quite funny. And see, For instance, if I get a job, I would like to think I was against, against the best. I wouldn't feel you know, I have actually done research I did a while ago. And um, I was actually interested in a research study. And I remember feeling it wasn't suitable for me due to my ethnicity. I just knew that I couldn't bring the same... Yeah, the same. I didn't have the same contacts in a, in a particular area I was working. In. And I just thought, as in, I shouldn't go for that job. I should step aside. Is that anything? Is there anything wrong with that? You, you know, as in, you know, having epilepsy, I'm sure I'd bring lived experience if I did research on that. So I would have, I think, something different. I would bring something different to the research. So yeah, I just think the diversity one, it, it's easy, it's lazy. And um, they don't care when it's, when it, you know, when they benefit. But that's my odd.
0: Yeah. Perfectly put. And I agree with what you just said <laughs> rather than what I said before it. <laughs> yeah, there's there's too many people that are um I
2: like characters though.
0: <laughs> it's good, wasn't it? It's really, really off with it. <laughs> it's it's almost like I've encountered many, many mediocre white men in my time. <laughs> Nailed that method acting. Yeah, no, I think my hope for STEM going forward is that social media and things are opening those things up so we have like Instagram and people doing science communication stuff online and they they tend to be not from these elite groups you know their family might not have been doctors for example so and they're kind of navigating the system for the first time themselves and maybe they're going to be able to impart some of that wisdom on their followers and the you know the people that they that are viewing their Instagram profiles or Twitter or whatever so I would love to see like a change in the next couple of years based on that because I think there's so much work going on usually by women I will say Um, yeah definitely but online to be like look we are here and we like things that are not just science like you know some of us wear makeup some of us are really into fashion like all these different things that make us human rather than it just being like I am going to sit at this desk or in this lab for the rest of time (laughs) Um, and this is what I'm dedicated to because it's it's often not the case but I think even just being visible will hopefully have younger generations to be like, oh, maybe I can, maybe I could go into a place like that.
2: Oh, definitely. Visibility is so, I mean, just if you take TV, for example, just hearing different stories, it's, you know, like we've, we've all, you know, watched the, the rom-coms where, you know, well, I have not the rom-coms <laughs> same sort of people. I want to see stories on different people that I don't know anything about their, their background. I want to see something different for change. And we are starting to see that more and more. And it does make those stories interesting that, you know, as in just learning more about different types of people, not the same, you know, white woman and white man. There's, you know, there's a, a rom That tends to be the thing, that I'm just so bored of it. And um... Can we stop casting Hugh Grant in every bloody role. <laughs> <evil? laughs> <laughs> I mean, great guy, but Jesus. <laughs> We've seen him enough. But, uh, he must be 105 now, as well. He's, he's older than me, so so yes. He's aged well. Which he has frustrating. but he has. Oh come on,
0: botox baby. So I think what we usually do at the end of our podcast is to ask for a top tip or a pearl of wisdom that you would like to give our listeners, or so something that either you wish you'd learned. Sooner or you know someone's maybe given you a pearl of wisdom and you you know you've really taken it to heart. is there anything that you
2: yeah basically educate us this is your time <laughs> <laughs> okay right I always think aim high because so this is a boring one but it's something that i've i've, I've always tried to do. I just think as in aim for whatever aim high whatever you want to get because the worst that can happen is you might not get it so it's, it might not be the biggest pearl of wisdom but I just think as in, when I work with students I always just say you know aim high go for the best job you know go for whatever you want to do do that yes there will be barriers but you can be the one that changes that and because the worst that can happen is you don't you know you don't get what you want I just think that I don't think we should be as much as there's so many barriers for us out there and I just think we've got to push, push and push against those barriers, you know and just be the person we want to be rather than what society tells us we should be, so that's quite a long-winded one, but It's uh... <laughs> a magic one, I think there's, there's so many Like
0: often as women we need to hear that more often than other mm-hmm. people may or, you know, even marginalised genders need, need to hear that because men just think it <laughs> Um, you know, yes. there's research that shows that like you know a man will look through a job description and they might only meet 60% of the criteria and then they'll still apply for it whereas a woman will meet 80% and go oh, I don't fit the fit the description so I won't even bother applying so it is it's something to something to think about and to constantly try and do and again a conversation I was having the other day <laughs> at the end of it I was like oh, I'm just going to try and fail more like that was yeah. that was my little like thing <laughs> I was like I just need to try and like, make it a goal to screw up more because if I do that, then at least there's a positive when I fail to do something that I've tried to do. <laughs> like, it's like, it's a good thing either way. I've either got a point on my failure thing or I've got the thing I actually wanted to do.
2: Yeah. Which
0: seems ridiculous, but it's like one way no, of no, to get no, yourself out of, to, out, of the, out of the little, you know, safety net.
2: Yeah, then you know, you've done well then. So, so yeah, that's, that's, I'm, I'm <laughs> I just think, you know, it's, it's just when, you know, people don't go for things. It's just like, well, if you, if you really want that, Definitely go for it, because I think you learn, even if you don't get that, I I just, I do believe there's some kind of you get what you're supposed to have. And I think along the line, you know, if you keep trying for things, you will get something from that. It might not be what you originally wanted, but I just think, you know, just don't let these, basically don't let the bastards get you down. I think it would be a short (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That is it, isn't it? It is. It's, It's important
0: as well. And it's, you know, yes, you might not get the thing that you applied for, but they might look at you and be like, oh, actually, be perfect for this and it might be one rung down or one rung to the side or something but you have to try and you know make yourself visible as we've you know talked about visibility just then that you have to make it so that you're there otherwise no one's going to see you yes definitely cool so at the end of each episode we give you a chance to plug whatever you would like to plug so obviously the book we've been talking about (laughs) it throughout the whole episode we will link the book in the show notes and also as a sneaky sort of side note that I didn't know, but Anna flagged this to me. Um, so if you are, Annie, you already know this. Look at this. she's like eyes darting from side to side. What have what I done? I do? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, if you are affiliated with an academic institution, if you go into the Springer website, you can actually download the PDF of the book for free. If your institution is linked to, or has a subscription, I guess, to Springer or Palgrave. Is that right?
2: Yeah, no, no, it is. That's so see, That's another thing about um, about classes. Uh, and if you're a PhD student, I just want to say contact me. That's all I'll say. I can't say too much because my publisher sure will be listening. But um, <laughs> idea. I wanted to make sure that the book could be accessed by as many people as possible that was the goal behind. Once I realised I was writing the book, I didn't realise at first, but basically I wanted to make sure as many people read it as possible. And um, just, yeah, even though the first couple of chapters are quite, um, it's, it's not fair what some working class expert, uh, academics experience there is a you bring a lot of capital into uh, and assets into academia so just remember that basically it's a really and obviously I'm gonna say this
0: but (laughs) it's a really excessively written book so I was reading it last night and and I had it like on the side of my bed and I'd read a bit of it and I was like oh god I'm exhausted but I really want to read a bit of that I'll, I'll read a chapter and then I didn't stop I just read more because it was like this isn't it's not an academic text it's a book that you can read it's not you're not going to have to sit there and and highlight it and tab it. You can just read it
2: like a normal book. Exactly um, what I wanted. Yes. Yeah. I know some academics wouldn't like to write like that, but I just thought, well, what's the point of me writing a book about working-class academics being normal, being approachable, and then my book not being approachable? <laughs> yeah, if you're
0: a bit of a hypocrite to, in that sense, wouldn't
2: you? Yeah, I wanted to sound like me, so so yes, warts and all,
0: I sounded like me. <laughs> no, it's fab. It's fab. So I I ordered it from Bookshop.org, which. I can leave a link to if you want if people want me to in the show notes it basically means that the profits it's not it's not like an amazon essentially tends the profits then go back to independent bookshops which is a nice way to do it and you know it's the same price everywhere but yeah if if anyone is struggling to get the book and wants it again contact one of us happy for little science co to to sub some of them too if your publishers are listening, we will buy them. Oh, yeah, it's okay. <laughs>
2: well, I can for for discount code. And as I say, you can download it if you're affiliated to it, an academic organisation. You can download it. So I like I like free things. So try and get you're it good, free free if you can. You know, try and get it free. I'm fine by that. It's not a big beefy book either. I think the PDF. Yeah, the
0: PDF in front of me is 153 pages, but that that takes in like your title page and all the rest of it. So it's not like one of these wading through mud academic pieces which is just
1: welcome very nice illustrations as well just looking at the
0: yes they're so lovely
2: oh so the illustrations I've got to give a shout out so it's Kate Cruthers Thomas I think her surname is and I saw her um, illustrations on Facebook and I thought oh gosh I just I just know so I saw them on Twitter and I just knew they would fit the book I knew I wanted illustrations I knew I wanted them black and white and I just saw her work and I thought she's fantastic we will link her as well yes thank you yeah, thank she's you. fab
0: is there anything else do you want to link your Twitter or
2: uh, yeah if anybody wants to um, follow me so I'm not what a person for plugging things I just I can't be like I'm that. forcing like, you come on <laughs> 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 I don't mind uh yes, with regards to my Twitter, so it's at and then it's Dr. Teresa Crew. And um I really did uh wonder whether to actually put doctor in the title, but I thought, you know what? Sometimes female academics don't do that, so I'm gonna do it. So so yes, yes. That's, what, that's you are a on.
0: doctor, you work I for think. it.
2: Yes. yes, you earned it. <laughs> yeah. Fab okay
0: so we'll put all those links in the show notes and I think that is it from us thank you so much Teresa for listening to us waffle helping <laughs> helping us understand what it's like and yeah writing a bloody brilliant book at the at the same time
2: oh thanks very much. I really do appreciate it I really do and it's, it's a fantastic show as well to listen to so thank you thank you, very much. Thank you so much thank you. you can come again we like you <laughs>